Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Friday, May 11th through Tuesday, the 15th, feature guest conductor Emmanuel Cravine and violinist Isabel Faust, along with organist Paul Jacobs. The program includes Tragic Overture by Johannes Brahms, the Schumann Violin Concerto, and after intermission, Camille Saint-Saëns' Symphony No. 3, the Organ Symphony. Here are Philip Huscher's program notes on the Robert Schumann Violin Concerto in D minor, a work lasting about 30 minutes. On September 30, 1853, an unknown 20-year-old composer named Johannes Brahms showed up unannounced at the home of Robert and Clara Schumann. He came with an introduction from the great violinist Josef Joachim, for whom Robert was then writing a concerto. The following day, Schumann noted in his journal, the violin concerto is finished, a visit from Brahms, a genius. Brahms' visit and Schumann's immediate publicizing of his extraordinary talent is one of the most celebrated stories in music, but the violin concerto remained unknown for more than 80 years. There are few mysteries in music as odd as the neglect and eventual rediscovery of this violin concerto. To understand how a major work by an established composer came to be completely forgotten, we must turn to the circumstances of its composition in 1853, a time that brings together all of the players who had a role in determining its fate. Schumann himself probably guessed that his score would eventually surface someday because he was, after all, the one responsible for unearthing Schubert's great C major symphony in 1839 and overseeing its posthumous premiere. It was Joachim, the young superstar violinist, who asked Schumann to write him a concerto. Schumann apparently agreed at once and had been highly impressed with Joachim's performance of Beethoven's Violin Concerto in 1851, and he was even more enthusiastic after Joachim visited him in Dusseldorf in August 1853, and they spent two days together playing chamber music. Schumann began composing the new concerto on September 21st and completed it in just 13 days, interrupted in the final stretch by Brahms' visit. Schumann's journal indicates that the piece was finished on October 1st, but it apparently took him two more days to complete the orchestration. In January, when Robert and Clara went to Hanover, where Joachim had put together a week-long Schumann festival, the violinist read through the new concerto at a rehearsal with orchestra. But he was ill-prepared and tired from his demanding concert schedule, and neither he nor the Schumanns were happy with the concerto's dry run. Over the next months, Robert's mental state deteriorated rapidly, and on March 4th, only days after he attempted suicide, he was institutionalized at Andenich, an eight-hour carriage ride from Düsseldorf, where the Schumanns made their home. Joachim wrote to Schumann, saying that he now knew the concerto better. I did it such injustice, he said of the Hanover reading, and offered to come to Andenich to play it again for him. Joachim did visit Schumann in the asylum twice, but apparently the concerto was never mentioned. In September 1855, Joachim played the concerto again, this time privately with Clara at the piano. The occasion, sadly, was her 15th wedding anniversary. But he never performed it in public. After Robert died in July 1856, Clara and Brahms were at his bedside. The violin concerto 
was all but forgotten. Some two decades later, when Clara undertook the publication of a complete edition of Schumann's music, she, along with Joachim and Brahms, they had all remained close friends, seriously considered including the violin concerto, but ultimately they agreed that it shouldn't be published, that it was a painful reminder of the composer's tragic decline and evidence of his failing creativity. Joachim kept the manuscript of the concerto until his death. When Andreas Moser, who was writing a biography of Schumann, contacted Joachim for information on the unperformed score, Joachim replied that while certain pages, how could it be otherwise, testify to the deep sensibility of the composer, this by contrast unhappily marks the weaker parts more evident. Moser reprinted Joachim's letter in his book, only increasing speculation about the validity of the composer's judgment. After Joachim's death in 1907, his son sold the manuscript to the Prussian State Library in Berlin on the condition that it not be published until 1956, a century after Schumann's death. In 1933, in a final twist of fate that today would merit front-page coverage in the National Enquirer, one of Joachim's great-nieces, Jelly Garagny, herself a fine violinist, claimed that she had been in touch with the spirit of Joachim, who told her about an unknown violin concerto that Schumann had composed 80 years earlier and asked her to track it down. In subsequent communications with Jelly, Joachim confessed that he had been far too intolerant and gave his blessing to have the work performed. He never explained why he hadn't mentioned the concerto to her while he was still alive. Willi Strecker of the B. Schatzirne Publishing House soon joined forces with Darani, and together they convinced Joachim's son to release the concerto. A copy of the manuscript was sent to Yehuda Menuhin, who immediately recognized the worth of the discovery and agreed to give the premiere in San Francisco. But... Germany's highest musical official refused to relinquish the honor of an important Schumann premiere to a Jewish violinist in America. And so the politically correct first performance took place in Berlin, played by Georg Kuhlenkampf, Germany's leading violinist at the time, in November 1937. A month later, Menuhin gave the American premiere, and Derani herself gave the first performance in England in February 1938. Although the Schumann's youngest daughter, Eugenie, then in her late 80s, protested the performance and publication of the score, she could do nothing at this point to keep her father's sole violin concerto from the public. The violin concerto is Schumann's last major completed piece. As a result, the work is still sometimes thoughtlessly dismissed as an example of Schumann's diminished creativity at the end of his life, despite the evidence of the music itself. It also has taken time for musicians to overturn the professional judgment of Joachim, Brahms, and Clara Schumann, the three musicians who knew Robert Schumann best. Of Schumann's three concertos, the D minor violin concerto is the most classical in form. The opening movement is a large, magnificent piece launched by one of Schumann's most expansive and energetic themes. Even Joachim admitted the beauty of the lovely lyrical second theme in the relative major. The solo violin writing is imaginative and deeply expressive, but it's far from idiomatic, which apparently troubled even as fine a violinist as Joachim. 
for the premiere, Kohlenkampf hired Paul Hindemith to rewrite the solo part to make it more conventional and easier to play. Hindemith, already a champion of Schumann's late works, probably agreed because he wanted to help promote the concerto as an important and brilliant score. Subsequent performances, including Menuhin's and Darani's, restored Schumann's original solo part. The brief, slow movement is one of Schumann's most intimate creations, a subdued dialogue between the soloist and gently syncopated orchestral music. It moves directly into the finale, a stately polonaise that carries Schumann's careful warning, lively but not fast, accompanied by a slow metronome marking. This is a joyous and festive movement, but Schumann wanted to make sure that it would lose none of its power and majesty. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Robert Schumann's Violin Concerto. And now on to Camille Saint-Saëns' Symphony No. 3 in C minor, the organ symphony, the performance time around 34 minutes. Franz Liszt never heard this piece. It was premiered in London two months before his death, but he had admired the score during his last visit to Paris while Saint-Saëns was still working on it. In July 1886, when Saint-Saëns learned that Liszt had died in Bayreuth, where he had gone to visit his daughter, Cosima Wagner, and to attend Tristan and Isolde and Parsifal, he decided to publish this new symphony with a dedication to the older composer's memory. Liszt's music served as a model to Saint-Saëns throughout his career. The unconventional form of this C minor symphony with two movements folded into each of its two main sections and its use of a signature theme that is transformed as the work proceeds are clearly indebted to the innovations of Liszt's own scores. Saint-Saëns may even have taken the idea of including the organ in a piece of symphonic music from one of Liszt's tone poems, Battle of the Huns. Saint-Saëns never misunderstood Liszt's true importance to the history of music. Quote, the world persisted to the end, he wrote, in calling him the greatest pianist, to avoid the trouble of considering his claims as one of the most remarkable of composers. Saint-Saëns' own musical life had a Mozartean beginning. At the age of two, as he later recalled, he observed the symphony of the kettle with its slow crescendo so full of surprises and the appearance of a microscopic oboe whose sound rose little by little until the water had reached a boiling point. At four, he performed part of one of Beethoven's violin sonatas in a Paris salon and he began to compose at six. He made his public debut at the Saint-Pleal in Paris at ten, playing a concerto by Mozart and a movement from Beethoven's C minor piano concerto and offering as an encore to perform from memory any one of the 32 Beethoven sonatas the audience requested. Berlioz wrote, This young man knows everything, but he lacks inexperience. Saint-Saëns quickly grew into an artist of maturity and taste, both as a performer and as a composer. Berlioz called him an absolutely shattering master pianist, and Proust wrote that his playing was free of the writhings, shakings of the head, and tossing of hair that adulterate the purity of music with the sensuality of dance. Saint-Saëns played his second piano concerto with the Chicago Symphony, by the way, in November 1906. 
Sassons lived a full half-century longer than Mozart, however, and he kept composing and performing up to the very end. He played in public for the last time just four months before his death. His career is one of music's longest and most productive. During his lifetime, composers as diverse as Mahler, Tchaikovsky, and Debussy were born and died. When Saint-Saëns himself died at 86, he had made his mark as a writer of operas, symphonies, concertos, and a treasure trove of smaller miscellaneous pieces. Today, the public knows but a mere sliver of this vast output, particularly the carnival of the animals he never took seriously and refused to publish, two or three of his concertos, Samson and Delilah, alone of his dozen operas, and this, the so-called organ symphony. This symphony was popular from the start. After Saint-Saëns conducted the Paris premiere, Charles Gounod remarked, There goes the French Beethoven, an indication more of Saint-Saëns' status at the time rather than a true barometer of his musical vision or depth. Saint-Saëns himself recognized that his considerable gifts, including a genuine flair for sumptuous orchestral color, suave and unforgettable melody, and brilliant craftsmanship, while untouched by most of his contemporaries, were not those of a pioneer. First among composers of the second rank was reportedly his own surprisingly honest and self-effacing, if offhand, evaluation. Neither a conventional symphony nor a true tone poem, the organ symphony borrows elements from both traditions. The form itself is unusual. This symphony is divided into two parts, Saint-Saëns wrote at the time of the premiere. Nevertheless, it embraces in principle the four traditional movements. But the first is altered in its development to serve as the introduction to the poco adagio, and the scherzo is connected by the same process to the finale. In other words, more experimentation with the standard chapters of symphony and sonata with the fusing of movements and the blurring of dividing lines of the sort begun earlier in the 19th century and vigorously pursued by Liszt in particular. The score opens with a brief, slow introduction, just long enough to announce a rising four-note motif that is Saint-Saëns' main musical material. This theme is already changed in character, if not in content, by the first agitated measures of the main allegro section that follows. A second, more lyrical melody eventually is combined with the main motif before the music loses momentum as it prepares the way for the poco adagio, reached without pause. Here, an extremely peaceful contemplative theme, as the composer described it, is presented low in the strings over soft organ chords. The calm and beauty are eventually disturbed, though not shattered, by the turbulence of the allegro. The two dissimilar musical worlds coexist happily by the end of the movement when nervous pizzicato triplets from the allegro accompany the poco adagio's serene and untroubled melody. The second movement begins with a scherzo-like tempestuous transformation of the symphony's main material, dispelled briefly by arpeggios and scales swift as lightning on the piano. Saint-Saëns himself was a highly accomplished performer on the piano and organ, and the symphony includes substantial and prominent roles for both instruments. 
This peculiar combination of fury and tricky gaiety is later undercut by a powerful, grave, austere theme in the trombones, tuba, and basses. There is a struggle for mastery, Sansons writes, which ends in the defeat of the restless, diabolical element. This solemn theme rises and rests there as in the blue of a clear sky, signaling a significant change in the symphony's direction. A mighty chord from the full organ announces the approaching triumph of calm and lofty thought. The initial theme, now entirely transformed by the strings and shimmering piano chords, leads into a development of majesty, energy, and lyricism. There are several detours, including an unexpected pastoral episode for oboe, flute, English horn, and clarinet, and further transformations, but Saint-Saëns' triumphant, heaven-storming destination is now in sight. Program Notes by Philip Huscher on Camille Saint-Saëns' Symphony No. 3, the so-called Organ Symphony. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.